Welcome to A Brief History of Cinema, where we watch movies from the 5th edition of 1001 Movies to See Before You Die, and then we talk about them. This week we're talking about the 1953 movie From Here to Eternity. I'm Eric Marcinkowski. And I'm Alistair Rathbone. Okay, Al, from here to eternity, it's movie, uh, I guess it takes place in Hawaii, just before the U.S. enters the war. Tell us a bit more about it. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, from here to eternity, it's a 1953 movie based on the novel by James Jones. And like you said, it is set in 1941 on an army base in Hawaii, at Schofield Army Base. Uh, and we're introduced to it with a, a new man in the unit who's transferred there, who's uh, Private Pruitt, who's played by... Montgomery Clift. Uh, he has been transferred there to an infantry unit. He's a bugler. He was transferred from a unit on the mainland U.S. over to there for some reason. personal reasons. Yeah, uh, We'll get into that later. There he meets an old buddy of his, I'm assuming from boot camp because he recognizes him, Angelo Maggio, played, played by, by Frank Sinatra, Frank old Sinatra. Blue Eyes himself. Is one of his early movie roles Frank Sinatra? Actually, this is his 15th film. Oh, wow. Okay. He's been in a lot of films. Uh, sure. He has a lot of earlier uncredited work. Oh. But, yeah, this is his 15th film okay. that he's been in. I heard that uh, his role in this movie is what they based in The Godfather. There's the character getting yeah, into the, Hollywood the, the films. Lounge, yeah, the yeah. lounge singer getting yeah. into Hollywood films. Yeah, this is where, where this comes from. Okay. Uh, when I investigated it, there's no actual proof to sure. this. But this is where the legend starts, okay. which is kind of cool. And, ostensibly, this whole film is about how soldiers lived in the army in this time. Uh, it focuses mainly on the two characters we've mentioned before, of uh, Frank Sinatra's character, Maggio, and Pruitt, Montgomery Clift's character, and then we have uh, Sergeant Warren, who is played by Burt Lancaster, uh, and then Philip Ober, who plays Captain Holmes. And these are all different kinds of soldiers. You have two privates, a sergeant and an officer. Those are all very different roles within the army. And they all have very different experiences. Maggie was very much a sort of a joker and the sly con man. Think of, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but the scrounger from The Great Escape. Oh, okay. If you ever saw The Great Escape, the, scroun- the character of the scrounger, that's sort of like what the archetype of character that Frank Sinatra plays. Sure. Uh, And then there's Pruitt, who's sort of this hard-nosed private. He's a career man, a 30-year man, as he keeps saying. Uh, So this is going to be his career, and he really does enjoy the army with all the flaws that come with that. We learn that he's he's had a tough time in the army, but he's still not going to leave it. Then we have Burt Lancaster's character, Sergeant Warren, who is, under ideal circumstances, what Clift's character would become, what Pruitt would become if he played ball as it were this guy is he's the first sergeant so he's the the head nco for the company yeah i I think he does most of the work because the captain is yeah he's basically the second in command the captain is in charge but he's very much your typical lazy officer who's just in it for the fame and the rank and the money and the recognition and yeah this is the story of how these four people it mostly focuses on montgomery cliff's experience but we get the other a little bit of the other three stories and how they relate in the story uh not only is uh philip ober's character of captain holmes just a shitty officer and a shitty he's also a shitty person who's always cheating on his wife well i know right at the beginning he says like uh he comes into the office his uh, company office for the day and he's like all right i'm here for a few minutes and i'm going to town 
And going to town is going to see a lovely lady. Yeah, wink, wink. Who is sure. not his wife. Yes. Yes. This isn't really, I mean, this isn't a war movie per se. No. Like, it's about men in the army just before America enters World War Two, but it's not about... It's more of a commentary on army life. Sure. Than wartime. There's not, like, war scenes and Yeah, no, because, and... because it's not till the very end that the war happens. The movie yeah. pretty much ends with Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor. So this movie, this isn't a movie about war. This is a movie about life in the army. Mm-hmm. So we see the captain's life as a womanizer and just a general shitty person and really shitty officer. Mm-hmm. Then we have the first sergeant's life, which is good from what you get. The army has treated him well. He doesn't quite like his commander, but he gets to sort of run things, so that's okay. Mm-hmm. He starts an affair with the captain's wife, yes, who's well known to have affairs with other soldiers. Deborah Kerr as yeah. Karen Holmes. Deborah Kerr as Karen Holmes. And her and Burt Lancaster have a very iconic scene together where they go on a date and they end up making out uh, on a beach. Yes. And literally, every this this is the quintessential making out on a beach scene. Yes. Anytime you have a movie where there's a romantic couple and there's a beach nearby, you're going to see the same shot. This goes double if that movie is also set in Hawaii, yes. like this one was. Well, I like watch like because when you watch old movies, you just see like, oh, there's I've seen this before, but in a modern thing because they just do references all the time, but they don't talk about it. In this movie, there's like they're kissing and the waves are like crashing over them. Then she like gets up and runs away and like falls down on her blanket, and he like walks over all like smooth and manly like and like kneels down, and, like bends over to kiss her with like his fists in the sand. And it's like. I've seen this exact sequence of shots tens of times in you know more modern stuff. I didn't know it was a reference to this scene. Yeah, this is a callback to that. Every time you've seen this, anytime yeah. you see anyone making out on a beach, you're looking at the exact same camera angles as from here to eternity. Yeah. Oh, I think Greece, like very specifically in the opening of Greece. Yes, yes, they it do. does. Yeah. yeah. So that that's a little bit in- interesting sure. trivia for it. And then the final couple of stories we get to see is just. The inevitable end of what happens to Frank Sinatra being the sort of con man soldier that he is, is that he ends up in the stockade and is basically beaten to death. Like, the sergeant who runs the stockade doesn't like Frank Sinatra's character. He keeps calling him the WAP and monkey and stuff like that. And while he's in prison, he routinely beats him. And then later Frank Sinatra escapes, falls off the back of a truck, but then finds his friends again uh, at the the bar on on base, and slow, shortly dies. Gives like one last speech of like I told you I was gonna get out. It reminded me a little bit of um, Steve McQueen and Papillon. Oh, okay. I was expecting him to say I'm still here, you bastards. Yeah. As he's floating away on a sack full of coconuts. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then Pruitt's story is the biggest story that we get sure. to see. It's the most complicated one because. He had sort of an easy ride early in the army because he was a bugler. He was a musician, uh, but also he was a boxer. That's what he was really famous for in the army is he was a really good boxer. But one day when he was sparring and practicing with a friend, he accidentally blinded his friend and he doesn't want to box anymore. So he gets transferred out, but he finds out upon his arrival at the base is that he was transferred to that base specifically in that company because... Uh, Captain Holmes is the boxing coach for the regiment, and he wanted him to, to win. Bo- he wanted yeah. him to be a ringer for the team because then they can win the division. I think divisional championships. Yeah, some, up. yeah, something like that. They were going to win championships, and he 
was saying, and he makes a note of it, is that all of the higher ranking NCOs in the unit are all boxers. And he's like, if you want to become an NCO, the quickest way to do that is to box. Yeah. And he refuses to box because of what he did to his friend. He doesn't want to do that anymore. And he says, I just want a soldier. And then they end up making life hell for him. They start hazing him. All the the sergeants start, they trip him up at drill. Make him run laps. Make him run laps. With his gun held high. Yeah. And they do a lot of crappy things to him. And at one point in time, the, the one guy, one sergeant really picks on him and starts a fight in the middle of it. And this is when we start to see the downfall of the captain because they're really slow to stop the fight. The fight goes on for quite some time. There's a big crowd, and even the captain comes out and watches it for a bit. And then the general comes out of his office and is like, why isn't that officer stopping that fight? Who is that officer? Uh, and then l- later, the, the end for the captain is that uh, they find out that he was running this, like, boxing for Chevron scam. And they were like, you can't do that. We will court-martial you. But the general's like, but the worst part about court-martialing you is that you still have to remain a soldier and an officer until the court-martial is done. And someone else points out that it's like, or he could just resign right now. And we could forego the court-martial if yep. he just resigned. So they so they make him, he, he jumps before he gets pushed. Sure. And that's what happens to the captain. Frank Sinatra dies. And then after Frank Sinatra dies, Pruitt, played by Montgomery Clift, seeks revenge uh, by tracking down the sergeant who runs the stockades and kills him in a drunken brawl and goes to hide out with um, a club worker, I guess. She's supposed to be a prostitute, but for censorship reasons, yeah. she wasn't allowed to be a prostitute. She's a hostess. She's a hostess. At a because local they, club that they yeah, are members They of. have the most unbelievable club ever. Yes. It doesn't serve any boot. It's called no. the New Congress Club. Yep. It has soft drinks yeah, and no booze dancing. And dancing. Yes. And you can't get handsy with the ladies. Yes. You must be gentlemanly. Gentlemanly, yes. And no such club has ever existed. I'm just... I don't, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, don't, I can't imagine, especially in that time, in that place, in that, so, like, with all those soldiers. Exactly. Well, also, because I think the book. Oh, the book. She's explicitly a prostitute. Yeah. It's a brothel. It is explicit. They had to change it. I'll get into that in a bit, but they had to change that, among other things. Yeah, so after he goes into hiding after stabbing the sergeant who ran the stockade, but then Pearl Harbor happens, and because he's a very loyal soldier, even though he's been AWOL for like a week, he tries to make it back to his unit, who's now out on the beach, preparing for what they think will be the inevitable invasion of the Hawaiian Islands by Japan, and because he's still in civilian attire, he ends up getting shot on the way and killed. And that's the movie. Huzzah! It's it's not a, not a very enjoyable movie. It doesn't it hasn't aged well. Yeah, I think I think that's something I noticed. It uh it's not I don't know. Like this is a great artifact of 19 of the 1950s. Sure. If you were if you're going to do a research paper on the cultural norms and the moral norms of the 1950s of the 50s of the 50s specifically yes. in America, this is a great example of that because they've how they've had to they can't explicitly talk about sex and stuff. They sure. make all the illusions, and that's that's what the the makeout scene at the uh, on the beach is for. It's supposed it's a substitute for an actual sex scene, yes. which they couldn't do. And a lot of the romantic talk would have been very provocative at the time and meant a lot to people at the time. But it when you're watching it now in the 21st century, it's yeah. 
quaint, bordering on juvenile. Yes. Well, because it's the 1950s America reflecting back on to the 1940s, to the 1940s with that post-war mindset kind of looking back at like, oh, life just before we entered World War II. So it's it's it wasn't made in 1941. It was made ten years after you know eight years after the war ended, about twelve years after mm-hmm. uh, it actually takes place. So it's the people in the 50s looking back, and that kind of the old Hollywood, like uh, new Hollywood in the 60s, like the youth coming up in the in the 60s hadn't really gotten in there. So it's still kind of this old Hollywood. Um, Studio system. Studio system, production code, mentality. Very, yeah, very regimented. and Because yeah. and it, was, it was based on a squeaky novel. Squeaky clean. Yes, it was based squeaky on a novel. Squeaky clean, yeah. Which is uh, way more explicit, mm-hmm. because like I said, um, the, the character of Lorraine is, in the book, actually a hooker, not a hostess. She's a prostitute. That yeah. had to be changed because of the production code. Also, they had to change the reason why the captain's wife... What's her name again? Deborah Kerr, the actress. Why, yeah, why Deborah Kerr's character couldn't have children. She at first makes the comment that she's, uh, I'm what you call a washout, if you know what that means. And as I was watching the movie, I was like, no, I, I don't know what yeah, you mean in I this really context. Di- I really, I didn't really know. don't yeah. know what you mean. But uh, she's had a hysterectomy. Oh, okay. in, in the movie, the, after the, on, during the makeout scene, they talk about how she had a miscarriage, and that ended up leading to her having to have a hysterectomy. In the book, she has to have a hysterectomy not because of a mixed carriage, but because her husband gives her gonorrhea. Oh, that's probably a little bit more realistic in terms of... Oh, well, I mean, maybe not more realistic, but that seems to fly. Like, I guess gonorrhea was a pretty pretty big thing back then. It's probably still a big thing. Still a big thing, but... Sure, but... Well, the reason they couldn't say it was gonorrhea is because of the production code. Hmm. You specifically couldn't reference venereal disease. Really? Of any kind? That was one of the don'ts. Huh. It was, uh, yeah, it's one of the don'ts, which is, yeah, number seven, no references to sexual hygiene and venereal disease. Okay, then. That was a, that was a big no-no. Hmm. The, and the one other thing that they had to change, because they also had to make changes not just because of the production code, but because they were working with the army. They got actual uniforms, guns, they got to use the actual barracks, they got to use army footage of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And this is a thing that continues to this day. The United States Defense Department will basically give you free shit if you're doing a military movie. You just have to follow follow their, the rules. Like yeah. you want to do a movie set on an aircraft carrier, they'll let you f- film on an aircraft carrier, but you got to follow some rules. Uh, and one thing that they made changed was they wanted it to be clear that the sergeant who abuses uh, Maggio Sinatra's character was that he is an outlier. He's not doing this because he's ordered to do it. He's doing it because he's a sadistic asshole. Okay. Like, it's not the army that says this is okay. It's like, no, this guy is a bad guy, and that's why he's doing it. He's not doing it because the army said to do it. But whereas in the book, they were sort of making it out to be that this was just... Oh, don't go to the stockades. The stockades is just a bad place to be. Yeah, this was sort of accepted practice. Okay. In the movie, it's he is running the stockades as a tyrant. Yes. Okay. Interesting. That'd be an interesting topic to do for a, uh, for an episode. Talk about the the military uh, lending equipment to movies mm-hmm. like that. That arrangement because well, like a lot of like uh, every Michael Bay movie uses that, and like yeah. a lot of movies use that. Yeah. No. And the Pentagon is really cool. Cool with lending out the funds. The most notable bit of trivia I have about uh, that in the military, like letting you use things and making you change things to let you use things. The movie Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. 
Ewan McGregor's character is based a lot, all those characters are based on real soldiers, and generally they use the real names, except for Ewan McGregor's character. His character is based on a real soldier who was there and had that story in Somalia. However, after the fact, that soldier was dishonorably discharged for child sexual abuse. Oh. So they were like, you have to change his name. Because we don't want to be associated with that. Sure. So they did. And then they got to use all the shit. So I want to talk a little bit more about like who who's in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Burt Lancaster is probably the big name from this movie. He's first billed. He's not quite the main character, but we do spend a lot of time with him as uh, First Sergeant uh, Warden. There's Montgomery Clift as Pruitt, Private Pruitt. Uh, of course, Deborah Kerr plays the captain's wife, Karen Holmes. Frank Sinatra as uh, Private Angelo Maggio. Ernest Borgnine actually mm-hmm. plays the uh, Fatso Judson, who's the evil guy in charge of the stockade. Yes. Uh, Ernest Borgnine is like... In I mean, his 90s. No, no, no he, 99. He, he, no, he died recently. Oh, he, he, did? Di- he died Never a few mind. years ago. Never mind. Um, but Ernest Borgnine is like, you know, famous old cranky man from forever ago. Uh, recently, he was in Red with Bruce Willis back a few years ago, 20, 2010. Uh, he died in 2012. But oh, okay. he was in Escape from New York, which is in the book. Um, like, he had a career. He had a heck there, of a career. Heck of a career, yes. Uh, and then Philip Ober played uh, Dynamite Holmes, Captain Dynamite Holmes. Or mm-hmm. Di- Dana Dynamite Holmes. Yes. Uh, Columbia Pictures movie. The director was Fred Zinneman, who directed many movies. Uh, Picnic, I know, was another one. He directed a lot. I think a few, like, World War II kind of movies. Uh, the cinematographer was Burnett Guffey, who did Bonnie and Clyde just a few years later. Uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying was another one of his movies from the 60s. The editor was William A. Lyon. And this movie only cost $2.5 million, but raked in all of the monies. Yes. Having a gross domestic box office of $30.5 million. Yes, which is a pretty good investment. Now, that... Because uh, I remember reading that it was the second biggest grossing movie of the year. Mm-hmm. 1953 was released. I think it made $12.5 million in rentals that year. But remember at the time, movies would be shown for much longer periods of time. And I think they'd get re-released. So I think it made money over several years. Like the first year it made like $12.5 million, which is still huge. Yeah. And then over the remainder of the its lifetime in theaters, it made another $17 million bucks or something. Because they didn't wow. have VHSs or yeah. DVDs or anything like that. So movies would just get re-released. I think that's what happened with this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, awards, it won... It won <laughs> many. It won eight total Oscars. It won Best Picture in 1953. Uh, Fred Zinneman won Best Director. Best Screenplay went to Daniel Teradash, who adapted the novel by James Joyce for the screen. Or James Jones. James Jones. We, we kept I... fucking that up the entire yeah, time before yeah. we started recording. And then Donna Reed, who played the hooker Loreen, she won Best Supporting Actress. Frank Sinatra won Best Supporting Actor. Burnett Guffey won for Cinematography. William Lyon won for Editing. And John uh, Livideri won for Best Sound. This film did go on to win uh, two Golden Globes, three New York Film Critic Circle Awards, the Special Award of Merit at Cannes. As well, it won a Directors Guild of America Award, a Writers Guild of America Award, and a Photoplay Award. Yeah. It was a very, very popular and successful movie for its time. This was the 26th Academy Awards, I think. 
uh, yeah, eight Oscars. I think Gone with the Wind came out in 1939, and I think it tied for the amount of Oscars won with Gone with the Wind, because Gone with the Wind won eight. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think that record persisted pretty much up until Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King. Cool. Or Titanic. I can't, uh, Titanic, probably. Titan- yeah, probably Titanic. Yeah. It was also very well received at the time. Got rave reviews, especially for Frank Sinatra's performance, which I... I did enjoy in the film. He does yeah. a good job. Well, I think him and uh, uh, Clift, they didn't win Oscars. but the... No, Sinatra won an Oscar. Or, sorry, Sinatra won an Oscar. Uh, Burt was... Lancaster and Cl- Montgomery Clift did not. Yes, but the and gentleman were, who yeah. did win for Stalag 17... Uh, said that it should have gone to Burt Lancaster. Been or Clift, I believe. Yeah, because I think they were both nominated for Best Actor. Yes. Yeah, they were nominated but didn't win. It went to the guy who was in Stalag 17. Other movies that came out this year, obviously Stalag 17, like we said, uh, Wages of Fear, War of the Worlds, very classic, yep. The Wild One with Marlon Brando, yep. an earlier version of the Titanic. And uh, Disney's Peter Pan also oh. came out. It's funny to think that like at the time when, when black and white movies, this is a black and white movie, were being made, these hugely colorful animated, animated movies were being made. So like if you have a choice, you go see a black and white movie with real people, or you could go see this fantastically colored Technicolor animation film. That would be a really strong incentive. I know that a bunch of Disney films are in the book, so we're going to be... Well, it's sort of like today with 3D. Colored films like that would be the equivalent of our 3D films. Mm -hmm. It's the bigger draw, or when something's filmed in IMAX. Yeah. As we were were looking this up, I'll let Al uh, explain this, but um, we saw this... We saw this one movie... I think it was a serial. It's it's serials. So so it's like the old Flash Gordon, where it yeah, you, you had a, a there was twelve serials for this one. Okay, twelve chapters that came out of, of like this serial. Like you go see, like you go. So it's like watching a movie in parts released over several weeks. Yeah, basically. Basically. Okay, and it was called Canadian Mounties versus the Atomic Invaders. Yes, which we have to find. We have to find and we have to talk about it on this podcast because, of course, it's Canadian Mounties versus the Atomic Invaders. From 1953, that and I looked up a poster. It looks it's a it's it looks a mounty and like this lady fighting like dudes in like black trash bags. It looks like it looks like so much schlock. Yeah, I uh, I really um, do want to watch that. Yeah. So we're gonna watch that and we'll get back to you on how awesome it is. Awesome or awful, you know, one or the other. Or you know, awesomely awful. Awesome, all aw- I I think it'll fall under the uh, my favorite video store in Peterborough uh, had a category called so, so bad. It's good. Yeah. They didn't have like your traditional uh, shelves by genre. They, they would just had sarcastic names. And oh, one okay. was one of the shelves was so bad. It's good. Yeah. Well, I mean that, that is a genre of movies. I'd say I would say so too. So uh, I know you, you were mentioning earlier a little bit more about the production code for this film specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some differences from the novels to the movie. I know uh, that Deborah Kerr's had in the beach scene her swimsuit. They're like, "Oh, you need to put a skirt on that swimsuit." That's something specifically that happened. What was the production code at, or like where was it at at this? Okay, so now we're in the area of what's known as the motion picture production code. You'll remember that um... it was the Hayes office, right, in the '30s. Yeah, that was in the 30s. That's how it was initially known. So this is the forerunner to the MPAA. It ran from 1930 to 1968. As you'll remember, we saw Foolish Wives earlier this season, and that was made before there was any official state censor in American film. So now we do have it, and this is one of the more draconian ones. 
because they had sort of broke it down into don'ts and be carefuls. So things that you couldn't do, pointed profanity by either lip or title, and this included the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, and un- unless they were being used reverent, yeah. like if you're making a movie about Jesus, then you could say it. Yeah. But yeah, you also couldn't say hell, damn, or God. And every other profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled, you couldn't write it out, you couldn't have anyone mouth it. Couldn't, couldn't appear on it. screen. Nothing. Okay. No licentious or suggestive nudity, hence the skirt, the skirt yep. on the bathing suit. No drugs. No inference of any sexual perversion. So hence all the book's references to homosexuality are removed. White That's... slavery, nor could you have interracial relationships. Uh, sex and hygiene, hence no mesh- mention of uh, gonorrhea venereal, yeah. and venereal diseases. No scenes of childbirth, no children's sex organs, although that still kind of stands. Couldn't ridicule the clergy or be willfully offensive to any nation, race, or creed. These are all don'ts? These are all don'ts. Hmm, okay. Now, the be careful was the use of the flag, and I they, they made sure to, to use it extremely well at this one point, because there's a scene right at the end, Pearl Harbor's happening, and a Japanese plane comes over and strafes the, the base, and then they shoot it down. And it crashes, and in the foreground is an American flag waving. I just thought it was very much a, like, raw America yeah. moment. So it's they, they've definitely made sure to be like, okay, we skated close to the line sure. on those don'ts, so let's really do some good old-fashioned raw America propaganda right here. Well, I mean, that, that definitely still happens in, like, I mean, look at the Spider-Man movies where there were these flags the size of a building just flapping around all the time. That definitely, that kind of stuff still happens, but... Like, this was codified as a law, or like, it wasn't really a... Code of conduct. It was a code of conduct, and yeah. if, if you didn't do this in a Hollywood movie, you would you get... Couldn't, you couldn't get it released. make a movie. So, yeah. this was essentially a law. Essentially, yeah. So, this is directly a group saying, these are the rules. You must have some patriotism right here. Yeah, it was censorship, plain and, plain and simple. It was sure. the state meddling in the affairs of artists and meddling directly yes. in the creation of art. Yeah. Saying what you can't do and what you should do. Not what you can, what you should. Yes. Let's have some more patriotism in here. Yes. Which, you know, is all fine and good if, if you know, that's what you want to make, but... Well, I, I think that they really wanted to hammer home the patriotism because the book From Here to Eternity yeah. is vaguely critical of the army as an institution. Maybe not so okay. much critical, but questioningly. Sure. Or questions it. The, the closest movie that that has come out recently that's very similar to this at least in my mind is the movie Hurt Locker. Uh in that movie even though that is more of a war movie and this is a movie about life in the military also this is very similar in that the themes that they're talking about it's like the first half of Full Metal Jacket where he's getting used to life in the Marines yeah. but Hurt Locker more specifically has a lot more themes like from here to eternity cuz it's about finding purpose in the army even though the army is a flawed institution and your purpose doesn't seem like it's the right choice by everyone around you. Like in Hurt Locker, it focuses on a guy who's in a bomb disposal unit in Iraq and he goes through doing that in Iraq and then he comes home for what you gather is like less time than he's been at war, but he doesn't feel right. So he goes back to war because that's what gave his life meaning. And right at the end of from here to eternity, Pruitt, even though he's beaten up and he had been stabbed in the knife fight with Fatso, Ernest Borgnine's character, 
Pearl Harbor happens and he still wants to go back to the unit, even though he abandoned the unit for like a week already. He's going back because now they're actually in a war and he's still loyal yeah. to the army. He's just been having a conflicting time because his friend died and he wanted to get some revenge for sure. that. But now that an attack has happened and things are getting real, he wants to rejoin his unit and mm -hmm. get in. Because that's, that's what the bigger thing is about this movie, is about what is army life like for soldiers. And I thought it was great that we got to see officers, NCOs, and basic enlisted men yeah. all represented in this story. But like I've been saying, it just doesn't, it didn't age well. You can still get these themes in more modern movies, and, and they do a way better job of discussing it than this one. Well, I guess that's a good segue. Uh, do you think you should see this movie before you die? Uh, no, instead just watch The Hurt Locker, Full Metal Jacket, Jarhead, and the HBO miniseries Generation Kill. You'll get, you'll get the gist of this. Uh, I basically agree with that. I like the scene on the beach just because it's so iconic. Uh, yeah, like it's... like there's some interesting things in this movie, like that beach scene, the production code aspect of things is interesting. Yeah, I think that did hobble it. I think as a movie, I think it could have been a stronger film if it wasn't hobbled by the strong censorship rules at the time. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think this story did have a lot to offer. Yeah. And I think if we were an audience who watched it when it came out in the 50s, we would have way different opinions on it. But it it just hasn't aged well. If you're yeah. a younger person, this movie is not going to connect with you on the level that it would your grandparents. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like, I didn't really Cause, connect Because I don't much. think... Yeah, I don't want the audience to think that we think this is a bad movie. It's not a bad movie, but you definitely don't need to see it before you die. Exactly, I'll agree with that. So, I guess with that, uh, rapid-fire recommendations. Do you have any? I have a few. Um, I don't have any movies. I haven't okay. been out to a lot of movies that I would hardly recommend. I've seen some movies that I like, but nothing I want to recommend. But I will recommend watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yes. Because that has taken up most of my time. I'll also recommend it just because it's great. Uh, I might have said this before. Uh, it's just a lovely show. Specifically for movies, uh, Don't Breathe by Fede Alvarez is great. Um, he directed the new Evil Dead film, which I also loved. Arrival is pretty good. Uh uh, it's a good. It's just a nice cerebral sci-fi film, and then uh, Mr. Strange was yeah, Doctor Strange. You mean Doctor Strange? Yeah, it was. It was fine. Yeah, it was fine. I'm of the same opinion of Doctor Strange. Better I than wouldn't... Thor. Not as good as Ant Man. Exactly, because I don't know. If you're a diehard Marvel fan, you've obviously already seen it. Yeah. But it's some of the I, moments I... in the movie were awesome. Like there's the psychedelic mind fuckery that's going on in like kind of yeah. the first at the end of the first act. Awesome. I wanted way more of that, but it just, nah, nah. It yeah, fun. yeah. It was lackluster at best. Yeah. All right, so we're going to... Roll for initiative. Roll for initiative. So what we're going to do, we're going to use a random number generator to pick the next movie from 1001 Movies to See Before You Die, the fifth edition. Uh, this number will tell us what movie we are watching next. So the next movie we'll be watching is movie number 359. It's from 1960. It's an Italian film, and it is La Ventura, The Adventure. I've never seen it. Neither have I. This will be our first Italian film. Uh, no, Faster Pussycat. Uh, okay, yeah. That was made by Italian. Okay. But made in America. Yeah, you're right. It was made in America. So not yeah, this is our first Italian film. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we'll be back next week with La Ventura. Um, don't forget, you can follow us online 
uh, Twitter. At Abhawk Podcast. SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash Brief History of Cinema. Uh, Facebook.com slash Brief History of Cinema. You know, like us. We're on iTunes. The more ratings and reviews that we get, the higher we go up on the iTunes charts, and then more people can find us. If you have any suggestions about movies we should watch that aren't in the list, uh, like uh, Canadian Mounties versus the Atomic Invaders. If you can get us a copy get of us Canadian copy Mounties of versus Atomic Invaders, please. please do so. We want to watch that so bad, and we'll have it, we'll report back on that one if we can find it. All right, well, I'm Eric Marcinkowski. And I'm Alistair Rathbone. This has been A Brief History of Cinema. We'll see you next week.